film which you are about to see is an account of the tragedy which befell a group of five youths. In particular, Sally Hardesty and her invalid brother, Franklin. It is all the more tragic in that they were young. But had they lived very, very long lives, they could not have expected, nor would they have wished to see as much of the mad and macabre as they were to see that day. For them, an idyllic summer afternoon drive became a nightmare. The events of that day were to lead to the discovery of one of the most bizarre crimes in the annals of American history, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. who are thankful for not being served up on a cannibal's table. I am your solo practitioner, Travis Maxwell Boone. And I'm home, back for a brief stint this Thanksgiving holiday. I've got five days off here in Louisiana, and I'm kicking off the nightclub with a mixture of Maker's Mark, a splash of Sprite, and a slice of lime, as well as some herbal enchantments, if you know what I mean, and I think you do. Before we begin tonight's festivities, I have somewhat of an announcement to make. Due to the increasing delay in shows, my new lifestyle, being away from home, working on the road seven days a week for weeks on end, I've decided to move the show to a bi-weekly schedule. So stay subscribed. Something new will be in your feed at least twice a month. And though this seems like a bit of a letdown, it just means that the quality of the show is going to maintain itself. I don't want to stretch out too thin. So to make sure all you witches and wolves stick around, I want you to join us. Subscribe on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Radio Public, or visit our official website, thenightclub.fireside.fm. For other podcatchers, our blog, and direct from the void downloads and streaming. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at the Nightclub Podcast and reach out and touch pure evil using our email, the Nightclub Podcast at gmail.com. Give us a five pointed pentagram reading and write up a review. Let us begin tonight with a little soul searching with tales of godly cannibalism. The greatest fear is the end of time. The badass, scythe-wielding lord of the harvest and ruler of time. This entity has taken on many names throughout history, and tonight we are going to explore a couple of these old gods. 
known to the Romans as Saturn, god of generations, disillusion, plenty, wealth, and agriculture. Also known as the god of the harvest, he was celebrated during Saturnalia. This ritual was performed as carnival with much gift-giving and bountiful feasts. Role reversals were also played at this time where slaves were served by their masters. This was usually just in jest, only to further make fun of the slaves. And a king of fools was chosen from among slaves and criminals as a surrogate for the actual king and for Saturn. This false king lorded over the feasting and at the end of the festival was slain. This sacrifice was for the king's surrogate to join itself in the underworld. Other human sacrifices around this time were made from gladiators. Are you not entertained? The name Saturn is derived from satis, or sowing, another connection to its agricultural roots, and it shares similar ties with the Etruscan god Sater. Quintus Lucilius Balbus gives another etymology in Circio's De Natura Theorum on the nature of the gods. This interpretation sees the agricultural aspect of Saturn as secondary to his primary relation with time and seasons. Saturn can come from the Latin Satis, being satisfied, this representing time consuming all things all generations. Known to the Greeks as Kronos, like Saturn, most notably appearing as an old man, shrouded and holding a scythe, leader of the Titans, descendant of Uranus the sky and Gaia the earth. He usurped his father and ruled until overthrown by his own son Zeus and imprisoned in Tartarus, the deep abyss of torment and suffering. Gaia conspired against Uranus and gave Kronos a great stone sickle to ambush the deity. Kronos attacked Uranus, castrating him with the sickle, and cast the divine testicles into the sea. The blood that spilled from Uranus fell upon the earth, creating life, and his balls created white foam from which Aphrodite emerged. After a golden age of rule, Gaia betrayed her own son Kronos this time. She had Zeus give his father an emetic to disgorge his two brothers and three sisters. Having freed his siblings, Zeus wins a heavenly war using thunderbolts, Poseidon's trident, and donning Hades' helmet of darkness. In some accounts, Kronos and the Titans are trapped in Tartarus. In another account, Kronos is trapped for eternity in the cave of Nyx. Byzantine mythographer Tsitsis has an account of Kronos being castrated by his son Zeus, just as Kronos had done to his father before him. This cyclical nature is also represented in the cannibalism of Zeus's siblings by their father. Saturn devouring his son is the name of a painting by Spanish artist Francisco Goya. The painting depicts Kronos Romanized to Saturn in the title, in fear of being overthrown by his children and eating them one by one at birth. 
The head and left arm of the child had been eaten off, and the mad titan is seen mid-bite. Peter Paul Rubens painted a similar piece, with less cannibalistic ferocity and a more methodical Saturn, gnawing on a helpless baby. This is human nature at its most primal and bloody visceral. The past and the future, an endless struggle of suppression, upheaval, taken to the limit. Our endless allegory of time and death plays on through the passing of the seasons and these ancient myths. Let's begin our midnight ritual of what Joe Bob Briggs considers the greatest film ever made, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. In our midnight ritual, we break down movies scene by scene. If you have not watched 1974's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, stop listening now. Cosmic cannibalism, ravenous rednecks hunting down fresh meat, pumping lifeblood under a living sun atop a scorched earth. Directed by Toby Hooper, who wrote the script with fellow producer Kim Hinkle, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a commentary of 1970s American politics based on the infamous horrors committed by Wisconsin's own Ed Gein. With a budget of $140,000 and a group of unknown actors, they created one of the greatest films of all time. This proto-slasher became one of the most successful independent films despite being banned in many countries due to its subject matter. Starring Jim Seidel, Ed Neal, Marilyn Burns, Paul Partain, Terry McKinn, and Gunnar Hansen as Leatherface. Now, I could have pulled endless amounts of trivia for this film. I watched the Joe Bob Briggs Last Drive-In feature of this twice in preparation for this midnight ritual. He is a fountain of information, as well as the many documentaries you can find floating around on the World Wide Web. But to me, some of the best stories ever told come from the mouths of the people who made the film themselves. There's a commentary track out there featuring Toby Hooper... Gunnar Hansen, and I believe Kim Hinkle. But I used to watch the film and listen to that commentary track over and over and over again. These guys are storytellers from page to screen, even just talking. I mean, it was enthralling. So instead, I'll just give you a few cliff notes of some of the bits of trivia I remember, such as uh, Gunnar Hansen, who played the most iconic killer from this film, Leatherface who only had one outfit for the entire duration of the shoot. I don't have in front of me here how long the film took to make, but I know it was made during the blistering Texas summer, in not-so-satisfactory conditions. This guy stank. People would avoid sitting next to him at lunch. He would often be seen alone, eating by himself. Poor psychotic fucking cannibalistic killer. 
And there was even a time where someone pulled up a limousine, popped open a Dr. Pepper, I think it was, and pulled Gunnar Hansen in there and told him he needed to cool the fuck off. One of the original titles for the film was Head Cheese, which is part of an early conversation in the film, which I'll get to in my scene by scene. And another title was just straight up Leatherface. I think the Texas Chainsaw Massacre by now is synonymous with over-the-top, crazy gore. But the thing about this film is there's hardly any gore. Like, I mean, there's some blood. There's some blood-stained things. There's a spurt of blood here, spurt of blood there. But it's not the viscera factory that some people think it is. The name opens up the imagination. And by the end of this film, it took a lot of imagination for the actors to want to see this thing through. The dinner scene, what a nightmare it must have been in reality. They filmed this during the day, shot for night, with no air conditioning, a room full of spoiling meat, sweaty, stinky actors, and it was hot. It was so hot. The windows were blacked out with black carpets. It was just hell on earth. But it lent to the performances. And what you see on screen is one of the greatest depictions of madness ever. So let's sharpen our knives and get ready for the feast. The film begins with a creepy introduction by John Larroquette, followed by the sounds of digging and the stretching, haunting, lingering camera flashes that have become synonymous with this franchise. Darkness is broken by disturbing images of rotting corpses and bones. The opening scene is set in an early morning Texas graveyard with a body positioned atop a headstone while a radio news flash describes recent incidents of grave robbing and other worldly ills. The title cards play out over black and red video of solar activity. The sun flares erupt and lick at those involved in the making of this film. A precursor of heavenly bodies relating to its interstellar subterranean actions. What follows is one of the most iconic shots. A dead armadillo lies overturned, belly up in the foreground while a van of youths drive off along the Texas highway in the background. This represents the foreboding fate and the eventual end. The van pulls over to the roadside and stops so the wheelchair-bound Franklin can urinate into a can. The gust of wind from a passing 18-wheeler sends Franklin rolling helplessly down the hill, where he tumbles out onto the ground. We cut to Franklin and the other teens back in the van, Franklin complaining about the heat, and Pam begins explaining some astrological reasoning behind all of the recent horrible crimes and grave robbings. She explains that Saturn is retrograde, meaning transiting backwards, and is malefic, capable of causing harm and destruction. Jerry, who is driving the van, asks Kirk if he really believes what his girlfriend is going on about. They arrive at the graveyard where Franklin and his sister Sally Hardesty's grandfather's grave is. This particular road trip is to make sure that the body has not been exhumed during the recent rash of robbings. 
While they investigated with the assistance of the locals and the sheriff, an elderly drunkard rambles about seeing things that don't get spoken of, and how fools laugh at an old man, but there are those who laugh and those who know better. The mocking of ancient wisdom and hushed dark secrets. After discovering their grandfather's burial undisturbed, Sally Franklin and their friends pass an old, wretched-smelling slaughterhouse, of which Franklin recalls his grandfather selling cattle there. Franklin details the murderous ritual of cattle slaughter, writhing and squealing after being blindly led to the sledgehammer, much like the crowds on Black Friday, and thus a panover of the cattle, unsuspecting victims, and the van driving off to the kill, consumers to be consumed. Franklin then explains that the killing is now more humane, performed by an air gun that drives a bolt into the brain, before complaining again about how hot Texas is. Sally notices a hitchhiker, and the van stops to pick him up. Meat nubbins. Franklin said he would smell like the slaughterhouse, and this grotesque character is indeed off-putting. Franklin says, I think we've picked up Dracula. And the hitchhiker says his father and grandfather used to work at the slaughterhouse. My family's always been in meat. To which Franklin responds, A whole family of Draculas. Before asking about the air gun. The hitchhiker claims that the old way was better. And that the air gun is putting people out of work. Nubbin shows the group a picture of one of the busted up cows. He then explains the process of making head cheese and utterly grosses out the kids, except Franklin, who says it's good. Nubbin snatches Franklin's knife and cuts deeply into his own hand, drawing blood and laughing while the teens are repulsed. He returns Franklin's knife and then takes a picture. After it develops, he tries to get some money for it and when he is refused, he takes tinfoil out of an animal skin pouch he was carrying, places a substance on it and lights it on fire. Then using his own knife cuts deeply into Franklin's arm before the van immediately pulls over and they kick him out. As they pull back onto the road during the pandemonium, the hitchhiker wipes some sort of symbol onto the van using his blood. And he starts to blow raspberries. <clears throat> Pam continues to read off astrological connections to Franklin, foreshadowing the hostility and touching on the strange occurrence that has just taken place. The youths pull into a gas station where an oafish man stares into the sun for fun and begins washing their windshield as the proprietor, Drayton Sawyer, comes out to greet them. They ask for gas, but he doesn't have any. They then ask for directions to the old Hardesty house, and Drayton tries to persuade them not to go and to just come inside and eat some barbecue. The oaf stops washing once Drayton goes inside to ring up an order of barbecue and returns to sun-gazing. Back in the van, Franklin starts to speculate about the motives of the hitchhiker. The kids arrive at the old homestead and they begin exploring the house. While the able-bodied teens laugh and joke and discover a writhing nest of daddy long-legged spiders, Franklin laments his decision to accompany them. Unable to join in all of their activities, he waits downstairs and blows many, many raspberries. <laughs> Pam
Sam and Kurt go off looking for a swimming hole that they were told about, only to discover it has long since dried up. They hear the sound of a generator running in the distance and head off towards it in the hopes of finding gasoline. Along the way towards the generator and the house close to it, they find very eerie rustic crafts, such as cups and pots hanging from trees, a wristwatch with a nail driven through it, and an enclosure of old vehicles surrounded by sunflowers. Pam and Kirk decide to approach the farmhouse and find a tooth on the front porch. Pam sits on a swing set in the front yard as Kirk decides to enter the seemingly empty house. Next to a staircase leading to the second floor is a doorway with a ramp, and on the wall behind the door are mounted skulls of cattle and various other animals. Kirk hears what sounds like the squeals of a pig and approaches this wall of death. Kirk stumbles on the ramp when suddenly a huge man wearing an apron, dress, shirt, and tie with the bizarre mask steps into the doorway and clubs Kirk on the head with a sledgehammer. Kirk falls to the floor, skull fragments in his brain causing his nerves and body to spasm wildly before the huge man strikes him yet again, pulls his body behind the threshold, and slams shut a large iron door. Pam becomes concerned that Kirk hasn't returned, so in one of the most iconic shots in film history, she approaches the house, calling for her boyfriend, and goes inside. She trips and falls into a floor covered in feathers, a chicken held captive in a small hanging cage, and looks on in horror at furniture made from bones, and tries to flee before the mass killer drags her back through the iron door and hangs her on a meat hook through her back. As Pam shrieks in pain, the killer starts up a chainsaw and begins dismembering Kurt before her eyes. Jerry, Franklin, and Sally are back at the van, Jerry taunting Franklin while they argue over where Franklin's knife is. Jerry goes to look for Kirk and Pam while Franklin and Sally have a heart-to-heart -heart conversation, which leads to Sally being annoyed. At sundown, Jerry comes across the diabolic farmhouse and wanders inside. He makes it past the wall of skulls and uncovers Pam's shuddering body inside of a freezer. The hawking killer emerges from some unseen place and bludgeons Jerry to death. The killer scrambles through the house, looking out of the windows, delirious and confused as to why so many people are showing up. Here we see a close-up of the mask, a stitched-together human face hiding that of the maniacs. After nightfall beneath a full moon, Franklin and Sally are troubled and trying to figure out what to do. Squabbling over a flashlight, the siblings trek into the woods, looking and calling for Jerry. Franklin hears something, and from the dark bursts a human face stitch killer, wielding a chainsaw. The killer runs the revolving blade and its teeth deep into Franklin's stomach, killing him, and sending Sally fleeing in a panic. The killer gives chase through the woods and the brush, Sally running with the hum of the chainsaw close behind. She is nearly caught in a twist of limbs and bramble, but escapes and runs to the bloody farmhouse. Once inside, the chainsaw begins cutting through the locked door as Sally runs upstairs only to find the corpses of the patriarch and matriarch. The killer chases her upstairs and Sally jumps through a window to the ground two stories below.
She climbs to her feet, clearly injured from the fall, and hobbles away as the chainsaw gives chase. Sally eventually comes to the gas station from earlier and is led inside by Drayton, who attempts to calm the hysterical girl. Drayton goes to investigate despite Sally's protest and pulls up a pickup truck. He comes back inside with a bag and a broom with a sadistic look on his face before an even now more bamboozled Sally. She tries to defend herself but is beaten to the ground by Drayton with the broomstick and he ties her hands, gags her with a blood-stained rag and covers her with the bag before loading her into the passenger side of his vehicle. During their drive, Drayton pokes and prods at Sally with the broomstick, comforting her all the while and laughing until he comes across the hitchhiker. Drayton exits the truck and beats and berates Nubbins for nearly getting caught at the graveyards, revealing that he is the one behind the grave robbings. They arrive at the farmhouse, and Drayton is appalled by the chainsaw door. Look what your brother did to the door! They bring Sally inside and the hitchhiker ties her to a chair, while Drayton fusses the subservient masked killer. It is clear by this point that the three men are a family, perhaps all brothers. Drayton orders Nubbins to go get Grandpa, and the killer, who they call Leatherface, helps carry down the corpse of their grandfather who is seated in a chair. They place Grandpa next to the weeping Sally and grab hold of her arm, drawing blood from her finger with a knife. Nubbins and Leatherface put her finger into Grandpa's mouth, and suddenly he springs to life, sucking the blood and fidgeting like a newborn babe. Sally eventually goes into shock and falls unconscious. What ensues is horror history. Sally awakens to a cannibalistic dinner setting with the hitchhiker, the cook Drayton, and Leatherface sitting around rotting flesh and buzzing flies. Seated at the head of the table is Grandpa, and once Sally comes to her senses, she begins screaming, and the family also begins an onslaught of screams. Sally begs Drayton to help her, while Nubbins and Leatherface taunt her. The madness in both Sally's screams and the family of cannibals' maniacal laughter bleeds through the scene, as the cook and the hitchhiker bicker and settle on letting Grandpa have this kill. Drayton claims that Grandpa is the best killer with a sledgehammer once killing 60 cattle in five minutes. Nubbins drags the struggling final girl across the room and brings her to her knees, forcing her head over a bucket. Leatherface tries to help Grandpa swing the hammer, but it just continuously falls on the back of Sally's head during her screams. Drayton and Nubbins cheer on their patriarch performing this blood ritual. But then, Sally flings, flails, and scrambles her way loose. She immediately bolts for freedom, crashing through the nearest exit, a window. Outside, she lands on her stomach, broken glass and blood covered, in complete shock and panic in what is one of the greatest performances of sheer terror ever captured on film. Injured and weak, Sally limps toward the road when the front door flies open and the sound of a chainsaw buzzes in the background. The hitchhiker gives chase, followed by the chainsaw-toting Leatherface. Nubbins catches up to Sally, yet she makes it to the road, even while a knife is slashing deep into her back. An 18-wheeler comes tearing into the scene, completely annihilating Nubbins, 
with Sally narrowly escaping. The truck driver stops and helps Sally through the cab of the vehicle and grabs a large wrench on their way out the passenger door. They flee on foot with the trucker turning to pitch the wrench at the chainsaw-wielding predator. A direct head blow sends Leatherface to the ground where the teeth of the chainsaw rip into the flesh of his leg. Although severely wounded, Leatherface still gets up and continues to hunt. A pickup truck drives into the crime scene, whips around and stops. The trucker goes on running, never to be seen again, as Sally uses all of her remaining strength to climb into the bed of the truck, Leatherface right on top of her the entire time. But she yells go, banging on the truck's back glass window as Leatherface slowly shrinks into the distance. Sally has reached full lunacy, blood splattered and laughing insanely. In yet another one of the most iconic shots of all time, Leatherface swings his chainsaw through the air, twirling and howling, dancing wildly as the ritual ends, and we cut to black. And there you have it. One of the greatest horror films, nay, one of the greatest films, as Joe Bob says, of all time. I fucking love the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Ten Franklins falling down the hill out of ten. And my little interpretation of the film, after watching it for the first Joe Bob experience, not the second one, I saw something in it I'd never seen before. And I mean, I've watched this movie, like I've said, over and over, with commentary tracks and everything else. And I don't recall, and maybe I'm wrong, but I don't recall anything ever being mentioned other than what's in the film itself about how astrology and the planets relate to the actions and the occurrences in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It was something I had picked up on the second to last time I had watched the film. So I went on a uh, bit of a hunt after that for some research. And surprisingly, the only thing I can find relating to this thought is... Uh, Something I'm going to pull directly from the website itself. This post is from the forums at uh, Fortinia.org. I think under the uh, esoteric section. The original poster is someone called Mr. Ring. And he writes this June 1st, 2004. Just got through watching Toby Hooper's seminal The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I had forgotten that a big plot point of the movie is astrology. The kids in the van are reading about astrology, and in particular, the main guy, Franklin, has his horoscope read, and it says something to the effect that for him, Saturn is in retrograde, and he will experience a sharp increase in bad luck if he makes the wrong move. And boy, going into Leatherface territory is one whopper of a wrong move. When the teens pick up the hitchhiker, and he is later forced out of the van after cutting his own hand, he draws a few symbols on the side of the van in his blood, which look like a half moon and part of the symbol for Mercury. The kids wonder if they had been marked or if he's trying to follow them. And just before that, he takes a picture of Franklin who, when he won't buy it, puts a substance on it and then sets it on fire. This could relate to sympathetic magic according to the original poster. 
It would seem like the film was pulling from the world of astrology and magic to help present a rational world that is pulled apart by larger cosmic forces. He goes on to cite other terrible things that have happened when Saturn was in retrograde. Saturn being the planet of caution, discipline, and contraction. When this planet turns retrograde, we tend to work extra hard and think more cautiously about our actions. Saturn was in retrograde at the outbreak of World War II, the Vietnam War, the Falkland Wars, when Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, the day Princess Diana died. And with Saturn being a malefic planet, one of destruction, its correspondences and magic are complex. Amongst places that are appropriated to the stars, all stinking places, dark underground, religious and mournful places, churchyards, tombs, and houses not inhabited by men, old, tottering, obscure, dreadful houses, solitary dens, caves, and pits are all appropriated to Saturn. I feel like this film, along with The Evil Dead, which has some Lovecraftian ties with the Necronomicon and these ancient demonic possessors, or some sort of semi-cosmic folk horror films, the fact that the heavenly body of Saturn is in transit, in retrograde, and is malefic, has something to do with this cannibalistic retelling of old eating new, which is why I brought Father Time and the eater of his own children Saturn directly into this thing. I'm pleased that I've touched on a couple of my absolute favorite films already in these early midnight rituals, including a complete folk horror in The Witch, and somewhat of a folk hero in Joker. But now we're going to continue to go straight up into the stars. For on the next episode, we are going to ponder if outer space is all dead with the Fermi Paradox and the Midnight Ritual of the Void. Stay spooky, bitches.